You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Occupied Paris, the 10th day of March, 1941. At 8.20 in the evening, the man known to his resistance cell as Matthieu waited in a doorway where he could watch the entry of the metro station on the boulevard Richard Lenoir. He tried to look beyond the entry at the tree-lined boulevard, but there wasn't much to be seen, only shapes in the night. The street lamps had been painted blue, and the windows of apartment buildings draped or shuttered in the blackout ordered by the German occupation authority. A sad thing, he thought, a dark and silent city. Silent because the Germans had forbidden the use of cars, buses, and taxis. But in that silence, nightingales could be heard singing in the parks, and in that darkness, the streets were lit by silvery moonlight when the clouds parted. A night earlier at the same metro, Matthew had noticed a gray bicycle bound to the trunk of a chestnut tree by a stout chain. Now he saw it was still there. Bicycles had never been more valuable, and soon enough this one would be stolen if its owner did not retrieve it. Where was he? What had happened to him? In a cell at some police prefecture? Possibly. But if the Paris police arrested you, friends or family would be notified and someone would have come for the bicycle. Maybe its owner was floating in the Seine. A bad fate, but not the worst fate. The worst fate was to be taken by the Gestapo. And if that were so, he might never be heard of again. Nacht und Nebel, night and fog, Hitler's very own invention. People disappeared, and nobody could ever find out what had become of them. They went out to do an errand and never returned. A sharp lesson for family and friends, punished forever by their imaginations. Now the ground trembled beneath Matthew's feet, and he could hear a rumble from down below as the train pulled into the station. Moments later, the passengers appeared, climbing up the stairway to the boulevard. They were still wearing winter clothes because it was cold in the city, apartments and offices barely heated for want of coal. As the crowd emerged, one woman caught his eye. She was lovely to look at, the face of a fallen angel, and dressed in the latest Paris fashion. She wore ski pants, warmer than a skirt, a ski jacket, and boots. She was lucky to have the boots. Some passengers wore clogs, wood-soled shoes, as there was no leather to be had for repair. To Matthew, the passengers looked tired and worn. They might well have looked like that at the end of a working day before the war, but for Matthew, the weariness was different, deeper. Lately, one heard the expression, je suis las. It meant, I am tired of the way I have to live my life. And this was what Matthew saw in their faces, in the way they walked. But then, he would think that. He cared for the people of Paris, as though he were a guardian. The woman in the ski jacket returned his look, a glance, nothing flirtatious, rueful perhaps, in other times than these. Ah, at last, here was Lisette, 17 years old, a lycée student. She appeared not to notice him, but as she walked past the doorway, she said, her voice low and confidential, they have crossed the border there in Spain. Alan First is the author of Night Soldiers, Dark Star, The Polish Officer, The World at Night, Red Gold, Kingdom of Shadows, Blood of Victory, Dark Voyage, The Foreign Correspondent, The Spies of Warsaw, Spies of the Balkans, Mission to Paris, and Midnight in Europe. His new novel is A Hero of France. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Thank you for having me. This is a novel that unfolds, I think, in layers. I really like this method of construction where we'll meet one person and they'll go far enough and we'll see part of one landscape and part of one set of circumstances. And as these layers build up, a plot unfolds, the characters intertwine. This is a really wonderful way of creating a novel. Thank you. I think um, 
One of my editors at Random House referred to it as an ensemble hero. I like that idea. That's a that's a why not why not have five or six if you can have one? You know, um, early on, I uh, there's an exchange between the characters that I think almost um, explicates your means of working, the way you think, where um, Matayo is talking to one of the men that he's working with, and he says, a minute passed, Matayo said. I'm sorry about your comrades, Arthur. The worst part of the war is when you lose friends. Gillen nodded but said nothing. What was there to say? And this idea of saying less, I think, is central to to your means of storytelling. Absolutely. Um, I learned that over the years. I think it started with my one of my writing idols, Anthony Powell, Powell however you like it. But in his um, autobiography, and I've forgotten the name, he tosses off, I mean, he's a brilliant prose writer. He says, you know, in a book, if a character asks a question, the other character doesn't have to answer it. (laughs) And I remember sitting there and being bowled over and thinking, oh, of course not. Life's like that. Not all questions are answered. But what you tend to do is fall into logic when you're a writer so that if there's a question there, there then has to be an answer and so forth. No, there doesn't. You, you, less is more. A lot of times it's better to leave something out or to say, to imply, you, you know, reader, where the conversation went from here. I don't have to write it out. I think, too... One of the things I noticed, you were talking about prose, and the prose in this book is really wonderful. It's just powerful. And you do something, I think, really interesting. There are times when the prose, is, especially the descriptive passages of, of Paris and the city, the prose is pro- poetic and flowing. And other times it seems it's very, like, straightforward. You're, we're just going to get this done. And I think that combination, that tension between the poetry and getting this done makes this book a really urgent and yet achingly beautiful read. Thank you. What I just, what I did, and it happened to me, of course, the first couple of times, I thought, wait a minute, I don't have to have a paragraph about the beauties of this village. I don't have to have a paragraph about this extraordinary thing or that extraordinary thing. Five words, six words, eight words will do it. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put it right in the middle of the narrative, right in the middle of the sentence, and then you're past it. And I thought, I like that. I mean, personally, I decided I like that much better. For one thing, the poetic passages could be more compressed, which I like. And a lot of times you can do that just in a few words. If, if God is good to you that day. <laughs> now, this book takes place in a... You've been hopscotching across Europe for much of your career, and you take this book takes us back to a city that made its mark on you. True. And so talk about... This is a, a during a time it's not, I think, often addressed in literature, and I think that you do a fabulous job of creating uh, a portrait of Paris... Um, under the occupation uh, of Nazi Germany? Well, it was a shock to me when I started to do the research. First of all, I had written a lot of books about the 1930s, and they had all the marks of the 1930s. And I had this cover that was repeated again and again, the man and woman, black and white, at the cafe in Paris of the black and white 30s. I think I said to one of my editors, this book is a Valentine, a love letter to a city that I love but no longer exists. And I decided I had to change at that point. I saw too many similar covers. It was in advertisements. It was all over the place. So I couldn't use it anymore. So I moved the whole process forward a year, which was a shock because... Paris fell June 1940. 
the resistance did not exist until March of 41. The intervening period, the, the French were in shock. They did nothing. They didn't know what to do. And gradually, these few people, as in this book, came forward and started to do something. That's how it happened. I think this is such an interesting portrait uh, of a nation. We don't often see this, of a nation that has been conquered, and yet life goes on. I think in general in this book, one of the real beauties of this book is despite the war and the conflict, you still manage to write about the the joy of life going on in all these circumstances, whether it's whether they're just occupied or they're trying to, you know, set up a resistance. These characters do find moments of joy in their life. And I add that to the resistance. When I draw back and think about it, yes, the resistance is helping an RAF bomber pilot get on a train and go down to Spain and up to Lisbon and back to the United Kingdom. But at the same time, these people resist by refusing to change and become another kind of person. They stay themselves so that the intimate parts of the book are spread way out all across all the characters. I, I think that Matteo is one of my favorite characters of yours. I It seems like you really found uh, a man you can resonate with in him. When you started creating him, did you create him out of a situation or did you create him out of the prose? And uh, talk about the research that went into creating him as well. I created him to a type Mm. And it's very curious. I'd like to I'd like to give you a, a literary reference here, but I can't. The reference that I always thought of in this book came from a George Lucas film, which I think was called American Graffiti. Oh, absolutely, a favorite and, of my youth. <laughs> and and in that film, there is the guy that always comes to help out. He's the guy you go to when you're being bullied. He's the guy, he's the big guy who defends the other kids. His name in that movie was John Milner, and I think he dies at the end in some kind of a racing accident, a drag racing accident. But he's the type I had in mind because Matthew is a hero two ways. Number one, he's a hero because he fights, which is what we expect. But he is also a hero in that he protects the people who work with him, ultimately saving them. Mm -hmm. I think, too, that Matthew uh, embodies the resistance in that he, uh, he resists, and the uh, just the notion of the resistance itself um, is brought to life in a variety of ways by these characters because not everybody who's in the resistance or is resisting is a hero like Mathieu, and no. they don't need to be. No, no, they aren't. They're, they are part of France, mm -hmm. and France resisted all over the place in many, many different ways. And there are instances again and again in this book. For example, there's a rather harmless young man who is a schoolteacher, and he's swept up in one of these German, one of these German roundups, and he's brought in to talk to this German detective, who's there to destroy the escape cell. And um, at the end of that scene, um, the German officer gives him his card, and then it simply says, "A few days later, the card was found in the hallway, on the floor." <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, those kind of details really make this book. They, yes. They absolutely make this book. And I'm wondering, did you unearth this kind of thing in your research? Or did you did your research just bring the city to mind and then you populated the research that you did with the characters you created? I, I, that's the way I always work. I do a lot of research. 
and I use some of the things that I discover in my research because they're just too good not to write about. But at the same time, the research suggests what may have happened to other people, and it certainly suggests what may happen to the characters that you create. So it's all organic, dynamic, mixed up together. I think that the way that we learn about Paris is just, it's so interesting during this period. Some of the French will completely submit to the Germans and the Vichy government, and some of them are resisting, and some of the Germans are really oppressive. Some of them are less oppressive. I think this kind of mix, is it seems very human. It's what I found in the research. Not all the Germans were demons and monsters, and not all the French resisted. Um, there were plenty of people who just went along. There's a, there's a passage in my book, The World at Night, where the film producer Jean Casson is wondering what to do now that France is occupied and Paris is occupied. And his attorney, they have lunch. He has lunch with his attorney when he has a problem, like others of us. And his attorney asks him, well, what will your barber do? And Casson says, well, he will cut hair. And the attorney says, now you have your answer. <laughs> uh, and it interests me, too, that even though all of your books, in a sense, are dominated by the looming shadows of World War I and World War II, you don't, you take us to some battles, but really these are novels that are set on the periphery of war not necessarily in the center. And that's a very interesting way to look at war because, in fact, when there are wars, most people are, are on the periphery of war. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And at the end, there's very few people that go and do the fighting. A bunch of 18- and 19-year-olds get out on the battlefields with rifles, but behind them, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people who do other things. So there's no... They, don't, they, they aren't going to fight. There's no room for them to fight. There are no weapons for them to fight. So they do what they do in the background. One of the things, too, that this book brings out, and I think this is very interesting, this aspect, these characters are, at one point, um, uh, Chantal's talking with another character, and she says, I am tired of all of the time. And I think that this kind of, there's a fatigue of just caring. The, the fatigue, it's not even necessarily, you don't even have to be tired for being awake or working so hard, though, that all these people are doing it. It's just the fatigue of the tension of being at war and being in this place where so many powers are intersecting. That's absolutely right. I mean, it took its toll, but a lot of times the toll it takes isn't suicide and it isn't anything dramatic it's simply somebody saying i'm tired all the time and 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 it's said more than once um by these one or more of these people that they're just getting worn out by this a little tiny bit every day <laughs> not unlike these days, you know, these days, uh, people that I talk to and friends of mine are tired a lot of the time. These are stressful times we live in. Right. Well, I think that brings to mind, too, one of the great tonics of historical fiction, especially well-written historical fiction. By immersing ourselves in this book, it just gives us such a, a parallax perspective on the other, on where we are right now. Indeed. I find that when I'm writing... I don't, I don't inflict this on a book. I don't make my characters talk about anything like this. What I do is I discover it. I'll write a paragraph and I'll go, well, that isn't very different than what's going on right now. <laughs> Good God, you know. I mean, we have a little bit of the 30s right now. In a very divided country, a lot of hostility back and forth. That's what they had in France before the war. I, the details are so important in this and so interesting. Uh, could you talk about uh, discovering the details, for example, of uh, let's just uh, focus on the 
airfield scenes. There's a, there's a couple. There's a great scene at a British airfield. Right. I mean, this ha- there are very specific planes. Everything is really specific, and that makes the scene really gritty and exciting. Thank you. But that can't have been easy to figure all that stuff out. Well, I do nothing but research. People say, what contemporary fiction do you read? And my answer is none. (laughs) I spend all my time doing research because I will read an 800-page book and get five words of, of a detail of some kind and only then hope that I can find a way to use it and use it in such a way that it doesn't look like I was doing research and found this interesting little factoid that I wanted to shove into my book. No, it has to be it has to be organic. It has to be part of things. It has to be to the side of your view. It has to be tossed away in some ways. But a lot a lot of this is true. There were nightingales that returned <laughs> to the parks of Paris. Um, and you, n- nobody was allowed to have a car. Germans took most of the cars, especially the good ones, drove them off to Germany. Now they were their cars. Um, there, yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. The, <laughs> the French called the Germans the Dorifor, D-O-R-Y-P-H-O-R-E-S, which means potato beetles <laughs> because they came and they ate everything. <laughs> this book uh, turns on kind of the the very birth of the resistance. Yes. And that's a really interesting time because these things have to kind of form up out of nothing. And was there any kind of documentation of what did people leave behind that you could marinate yourself in to create such convincing scenes? Um, There are some very good books, not a lot of them, but there are some very good books about the resistance, and they are the stories universally of the politically different resistance cells. There was a big military one, very important, of French airmen, soldiers, sailors. Their country had surrendered, but they sure as hell hadn't surrendered, and they meant to keep on fighting, and they did. Uh, then you had the extreme right wing, um, uh, the aristocracy. They had their own special line, and so on and so forth. Then, in 1941, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, then you had the French Communist Party. That's a whole other thing. These were tough guys. They had guns. They knew how to use them. They didn't mind using them. They were organized. They followed orders. And they killed people. I think that, for me, one of the things, too, is that the layers of loyalty that these people have gives them, makes your characterization, must be challenging for you to create characters who are loyal to their friends, want to be loyal to their nation, don't want to put people in danger. This is a complicated creation. Could you talk about creating these different layers of loyalty in terms of the nations, for well, example, French, French communists. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, there was a um, civil war after France was liberated. 100,000 people died in this civil war between the French Communist Party and everybody else. But what I like to ask people to do when I'm talking or reading, think about yourself and think about seven or eight of your friends and you're going to get together and you're going to undertake a dangerous venture. First thing you do, you burn your address book or delete it in this case, but you burn your address book because if they catch you and they have your address book, then they have all your friends and you can't allow that to happen. Now you think, I'm going to have eight of my friends join me in this endeavor who do I trust with my life? I, uh, among the friends I have. I mean, it's probably not going to be true that all of them would meet that criteria. I think that that's one of the great things about Matayu is that he, he says uh, at one point he understands his talent is 
um, his ability to read other people and to understand without speaking to them whether or not they can be trusted. And I, I think it's uh, I, there's a great quote where he says, I could only make one mistake. That's correct. And he knows it. Uh, he he does okay most of the time, but then there comes a moment when, I mean, one of the characters I put in this book, and I took incredible pains with this. I must have written this paragraph 35 times because I had to get it right. But the villain in this book is a psychopath, a traditional psychopath, the psychopath you know among your acquaintance. Someone among your acquaintance, you know, lies and but but is a very genial person and easy to like and easy to have in your confidence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That paragraph took a long time to write because I had to hit it all. And I had to think about some people that I'd known who were like that. Mm. Not that they aren't likable. They're immensely likable. That's the whole problem. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the kickoff for this book is uh, the rescue of a British pilot who's yes. been down. And this, again, is another – you managed to unearth these corners of the war and corners of, you know, Europe that – haven't received a lot of attention and I, that do you like look at things and say okay well this has been done and this has been done and this has been done and I'm going to find this or do you just find this and go oh I have to do something with that it's that way uh, it's that way I do so much reading and I must say there's so much written about this war and volumes and volumes and volumes and yet I come across something and I go Oh, that's for me. That story hasn't been told, and it will bear telling. I can, and I can tell it. It's, it, it isn't an intellectual reaction. It's right here in the heart. Um, and you feel, I feel it, and then I know I'm in the right place. And if I don't feel it, I'm not in the right place. It has to be, I have to have an emotional response so that the reader can have an emotional response. Well, these books for books that are filled with action and suspense are, I think, in fact, although they are kind of classified as spy novels or suspense novels, I would say they are primarily novel, emotional novels. There are, these are emotional journeys that these characters make in tough times, to be sure. But the what happens to them happens to their hearts. Yes, of course. I like... I used to call myself a spy novelist. That I, I used to say I write spy novels. And a lot of people like yourself, smart readers, um, say, nah, you don't really do that exactly. Because <laughs> you know, they've read thrillers and they've read this one and that one. So I changed so that now I say, no, I don't write spy novels. I write novels about spies, which is really a very different sort of thing. It, it certainly is. Uh, because, for example, Matthew, one of the most charming aspects of him is that he has a dog <laughs> and he loves the dog. And there are scenes with the dogs that, you know, it, it's really a, a powerful thing. Anybody who has a dog now is going to say, wow, that's just the way dogs are. I put a dog in every book. <laughs> if you pay for one of my books, you're getting a dog. Do you have Especially, dogs yourself? I, I, I've had three. Oh. I don't have one right at this very moment, but I've had three, and I love them very much. And it's always an interesting breed, and it has to be an appropriate breed for the novel. For example, in Spies of the Balkans, we had this fabulous Greek sheep dog, sheep <laughs> protector dog, not, not herder, mm -hmm. protector. And um, in this book... Uh, we have, of course, one of my absolute favorite breeds, which is the Belgian Shepherd of the Tervuren variety. And if you wonder about it, have a look at that, and you will see the most beautiful dog in the world. They are just gorgeous. They are also very tough. The great dog person that used to uh, narrate the Westminster Kennel Club show used to say, when, the, when that breed came up, he used to say, 
fear was bred out of this breed a hundred years ago. <laughs> it was a dog from other times. And one of the things I did in this book I never tried before, there's a dialogue with this dog. And in the way people talk to their dogs, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think the line goes, Mariana knew what a question was and answered always in the same way with a double thump of her heavy tail on the floor. <laughs> I remember that. And, and I thought, too, that is what you do so effectively is create a time where the characters are in constantly menaced by the world around them. Yet they experience moments that we might experience. And that allows us to draw or put ourselves in their place in those small moments. But also, we can, while we're connecting to the menace that surrounds them, we can also connect to the menace that surrounds us. And it's not much less. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it isn't. Uh, and I, that's the whole purpose of my writing. And the way I write is to include the reader. Not to say, not to exclude the reader and say, these are heroic times and you don't begin to have the stature to exist in such times. Forget it. These are the normal times of people then and you're reading them in the normal times of people now. Well, too, when you read this book, this is a book, I think, maybe more than most, where you put yourself in this place and say, if I were to be in a time when they in this French resistance, what would I do? You know, how would I behave? And I think that this is a, a question that not only you ask from the get-go, you re-ask it every time you meet a new character and you see some new level of, you know, complicitness with the regime or rebellion against the regime. Right. No, I, that's that's been said often, that these books ask one question. It's never explicit, but it's always the same. What would you do? It, 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 and, and you it, really, you, you, you can sit down and think and go, what would I do? I mean, it depends. What are your responsibilities? You know, you have a kid, you have a family, et cetera, and so forth. You'd really have to think it through about what you were deciding and how, what, and how you were taking your family and friends with you in, into peril. For all that these books are, hopscotch across Europe and around in time and, and take us to different places. And they're all each, I think you could read any of them just by themselves. Right. Uh, you do bring back some characters. And I can't tell you how happy I was to see Max de Leon, which you introduced in your last book. And you said, I, you said you, had, you were planning on bringing him back. And here he is. That's true. I did bring him back. And not only did I bring him back, he quit his job as an arms dealer because that's not a nice thing to be. And now put himself in the position of Rick in Casablanca so that he owns a nightclub. And he's always, and he will reappear. Um, he's wonderful because he's half gangster, half saint, and and just the perfect person to have in times of resistance. And his gangsterism, you know, the fact that he's a tough guy and he's been through a lot is of immense use to Matthew so that he becomes a kind of consigliere to this group. I, I think, too, you just said mentioned Casablanca, and this book also really reminds me of that movie. Oh, thank you. The power of that movie uh, and the way that, again, the externality of the war by having this kind of like place where there's a dome of apparent peace, but it's not peace. The war is still being fought, but just in a very different way. It's true. And people sometimes ask about the French resistance, how many French people were really in it. And I like to say, well, the French kind of did a little public relations work after the war so that if you say resistance, people will answer, oh, French resistance. Let me tell you, what went on in Poland, what went on in Greece, and what went on in Italy makes what went on in France seem very small and slight by comparison because in those places, Partly, mostly because of the German attitude towards these people, because the Germans thought they were less than human. It was teeth in the throat. It was not kidding. It was death right away 
from day one, if you know what happened to the Poles, if you know what happened to the um, uh, Greeks, uh, there's a line. When I was doing the work for Spies of the Balkans, which is about Salonika, which is the Balkan part of Greece, um, it describes the Italian attack on Greece from Albania, which they were occupying. Greece, the Greeks, chased them back into the middle of Albania and just about out of Albania before Hitler came along and saved Mussolini. And it said in that book, the Italians were horrified to discover that the Greeks fought to the death. <laughs> well, I think that, too... The really insanely complicated politics of the time and the political relations between all these characters and all these countries, you bring that to life so well. Do you have like some kind of like meter or, or spreadsheet or something that where you in the middle chart in the middle of my head I do because if you read about France, it is immensely complicated what Vichy did, what the Germans did and didn't do, where they were, how it all worked out, the fact that for the first two years of occupation, Hitler thought he could seduce the French and become their friends. He, he wanted to be friends with the French just, and mostly wanted to be friends with the English, whom he admired tremendously. So there was that strange, placid period. He didn't set the Gestapo loose until 1942 or so, when he finally got it through his head that the French were um, uh, fooling around with him. <laughs> I don't want to use what the expression that's in my head, but uh, the French were uh, tricked him. There we are. <laughs> the experience of reading this book in terms of uh, immersing ourselves in the characters is so interesting because you have created so many full characters. And we talked a little bit about Leon and, and Matthew, but also uh, Chantal. Uh, what a wonderful character she is. Thank you. Yeah. One of the great things about this uh, research that I did was the number of really strong women who got involved in the resistance and fought hard in the resistance and were very, very instrumental in the victories that they won. Um, French women are really who runs that country. Uh, <laughs> well, if you live in France for a while, you'll see who really runs that country, and it is that miraculous creation, the French woman. Um, uh, in 1941, the position of women was such, they didn't get the vote till 1944. In 1941, if a woman wanted to um, have a driver's license, she had to have a letter from her husband, and wow. so on and so forth. But the, a lot of the men were gone. A lot of the men had been killed in World War I. There wasn't a village in France that didn't have women in black. Everywhere you looked, there wasn't a village in France where there wasn't somebody with a crutch or a cane or blind. You know, from World War I, which is was merciless, ruthless, wiped out millions of people. Then many other of the men were put in concentration, uh, prison camps after France um, surrendered in June of 40. That left the strong women, and they're plenty strong, and they're plenty strong in this book. There's a wonderful scene where we meet some French punk teenagers who are kind of Nazified. And I think that this is such an interesting and nuanced portrait because <clears throat> when we see those, we can understand, you make it so that we can understand why that personality type would go in that direction, in that situation. Absolutely. They were the bad kids. <laughs> and the bad kids were made into the good kids, and Vichy used them, gave them these little uniforms and ties and uh, ranks and uh, belts and whatnot, and said, well, you know, you're helping us now. You're part of the militia. And they loved it. 
But but these were the bad kids of their time. These were the psychopathic, mean, horrible little kids, teenagers that exist every you know every every culture has them. There's no getting away from that. <laughs> uh, and you mentioned we've talked a little bit about the Vichy government and what what a what a work they are <laughs> piece of work they are. <laughs> well, you know people decided to cast their fate in that direction. They looked at the world as they saw it, at the politics, at the United States, which was in no hurry to get involved until 41 December. Mm. Uh, yeah. And they said, this, occu- this occupation is going to go on for 500 years. That was one of the observations that somebody made. I thought, wow, at that point, it, that's a reasonable uh, assumption. Right. And so how am I going to go? Where, you know, the French, many of the French are opportunists. They can go this way. They can go that way. They bend in the wind. They don't have all that strong of a political opinions. Although they seem to have strong political opinions, they don't necessarily have them. And they certainly didn't have them in that year because Germany had swept across Europe. Germany literally had all of Europe in its grasp. So now, am I going to resist? How much am I going to resist? And if I quit my job in this ministry, what am I going to do? What am I going to do tomorrow morning? Do I put on my suit? Why? To go where? To do what? Mm. It's not, you know, I mean, and money was very, very scarce. There were a lot of factors that pushed people into collaboration. Then, of course, after the war, nobody collaborated. They were, everyone was in the resistance. <laughs> Quite astonishing. Funny how that works out. Funny how it does. Uh, I love that your master of shadows appears. <laughs> uh, he's such a great character, and he's so sinister. S. Kolb. Yes. The, the, well, this is a spy novel, kind of, <laughs> but there's at least one or two real spies in it, and S. Kolb is one of them. Mm. He appears, he disappears. He's throughout the novels. There's a couple of them. He's been he's been in a few. He was in Midnight in Europe. If I'm yes, not absolutely. Mistaken. Yeah, yeah. It, my readers demand <laughs> his return. You know, I go out and I'm on a 17 day tour at the moment, and I hear a lot from the readers about what they like. And one of the things they like are these continuing characters who pop up and appear, and oh, I know him. You know, you you don't know him. He's a character in the book. (laughs) Well, yes, they do know him. We do know him. Yes. (laughs) Uh, The character I thought was really fantastic was the the German who's sent over, sent from Hamburg. And so what's interesting is that you create a situation where we have two characters who are sympathetic, I mean, because we we actually like that guy. I mean, you do. Who are sympathetic, but they're antagonists. That's an interesting. That's a fascinating uh, setup for creating plot tension. Well, he's the early German villain, shall we say, or ver- the early German opposition, and he's mentioned as uh, the Megray. You know, right. <laughs> of 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 Hamburg, you know, mm-hmm. the brilliant detective, and they bring him in to try to destroy this escape line. Later, there's a scene where, when he's fired from Berlin, you see his replacement, who's in the Gestapo, and it says of him, "If you looked into his eyes, you could see there was nothing he would not do to you." And that. Is another that's uh, an example of your uh, concise ability to characterize the people in your book, and I think concision is. Uh, I mean, your remarkable strong point. I mean, well, thank you. <laughs> do you have to trim these back, or, or do they come out this this I, this? I, uh, I, I no, I believe I, I wrote a thousand pages of manuscript to produce a two hundred and ninety-five page novel. I write, rewrite, 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 revise, revise, revise until I get it like I want it. But it takes me forever. The first draft is just funny. It's terrible. (laughs) But if I work at it, 
a word at a time, a sentence at a time, I begin to get something where I go, oh, that's, that's pretty good. I can, I, can, I can leave that in. It takes a long time. So, and, and, and it doesn't look, I'm hoping that it doesn't look like it does. It should seem effortless. It does seem effortless. That's why I asked if you, I thought it might seem perfectly plausible that you sat down and wrote this in two months and then took the, I the, wish. the rest from of the your, years. From <laughs> your mouth to God's ears. I No, no, it doesn't work that way for me. Um, I, there's some really uh, nice kind of terrorizing scenes uh, with air raids and where the British bombers are flying overhead. And what's fascinating is that the uh, characters in France who are essentially allies, want to be allies with the British, are being, you know, in fear of being bombed by them accidentally. And were bombed uh, by yes. them accidentally and were bombed later in the war, were bombed by them on purpose because the Brits had to get to the French factories that were now producing armaments for the German army. So too bad. <laughs> uh, a whole lot of French people died at British hands. The, Just, the British were, were uh, are portrayed and were, in fact, fairly ruthless with regards to what they were willing to do because they saw Hitler, and not without reason, as an existential threat. Hitler was very stupid in some ways. And one of the ways he was stupid is he saw the British as a nation of shopkeepers. Let me tell you that that's not true. These are not people you want to tangle with. They are very tough, ruthless people. That's their nature. They have the Viking streak in them. You know, mm-hmm. and um, you you better think a long time before you pick a fight with them. Hitler picked a fight with them. They tore him apart. They tore him absolutely apart in all kinds of ways. And you can see him stomping up and down. How dare they do this? How dare they do that? Well, they dared. And they more than dared. Then they doubled down and did it some more. Um, there's a nice little piece of film, black and white film, of the director of British bombing, known as Arthur Bomber Harris. And he's got a little mustache, and he says, they have sown the wind, and they will reap the whirlwind. Thousand bomber raids. A lot, you know, that's not funny when you consider the amount of TNT ordnance that was dumped down on these people. You know, there's a great scene in here where one of the characters performs the same kind of thought experiment about loyalty and what would you do if this happened and that happened that the reader performs. That for, he says, well, you know, you you come in the morning before lunch, your friend calls and says, you know, can I bring you this? And then they send somebody else. And this is a really interesting parallel because this is the kind of thing we're thinking ourselves. Well, what, 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 what would I do if Joe called me and said, can right. I bring you something? Right, and then right. Send somebody you'd, be, else. you'd be sucked right in if it's done the right way. But what, what Gislain, the college professor, the anthropologist, mm. is asking Matthew is, how dirty do you want to play? And that's really not an answered question. Or in a way, it's answered in practice. Mm. Because Matthew knows, Delion tells him, kill this kid. Deal with it in the classic way. And Matthew says, the classic way? And Delion is impatient and he says, you know what I mean. I don't have to tell you. And and guess what? He should have. <laughs> but he didn't. Mm. He's, he's, not, he's not like that. He's not enough like that that he's capable of going out and taking a human life by surprise, not not in conflict in any way. And he didn't. And he lives to regret it. And But what's interesting is for us as readers, we regret that he has to regret it, but we like him because he lives to regret it. So there's a really complicated he's a hero. reader sympathy. Yes. He's a hero in precisely that way. He's a hero of decency as much as he's a hero of war. There's also a, a wonderful scene where uh, 
a character who is already in the resistance is contacted. And there's this kind of like he realizes after a while what's going on is that he's being recruited by somebody who doesn't know he's already been recruited. <laughs> and this is, I think, you know, this is a very meta spy novel in that sense. Yes. Well, I mean, couldn't that happen to you and couldn't it happen to me? If we were in a world where people were in resistance cells and we knew some of them were, you would be recruiting your friends and you would have no idea, no way of knowing that they had already been recruited and were active. They would try to tell you they weren't. They would try to say, oh, I have too many responsibilities. I can't. No, no, I can't. Forget it. That's that's what they would have to do. Now, I've got to assume you're going to keep playing in this same playground. Yes. Do you know where you're going to hopscotch to next? No, I know what I won't do. It won't be another five people in the next year of the war. Okay. <laughs> that way, it, that's a trap. Mm-hmm. And I've discovered with these novels, if I have a good concept to start out with, I'm fine. But I have to have the concept, and then the book writes itself in, in a number of ways. If I pick wrong, I struggle, things are terrible, I have to reverse. It's like trying to turn a car around in too small a space. Um, so I try to, I mean, I've done written 18 books so I try to try to make things as easy for myself as I possibly can. Now, one of these books was uh, adapted into a TV series. Yes. And do we see, I mean, these books seem like they're so perfect for that. And this is really a golden age of television picking things up and doing a fantastic job, if you're lucky. Uh, have any of the has any no. more of that happened for these? No, I don't know why. I don't know what's wrong. I don't know. I don't know. I can't say. Um, it just doesn't happen. I don't know any more than you do, and I don't really have an answer, or or I don't have an answer for this. That's really odd because I'm well. I, as far as I'm concerned, the reading experience is is always better because you're always immersed. It gives you something that the um, TV experience can't possibly get. Right, that's I mean, true. But still, someone ought to come forward and make either an HBO series out of this, which I think would be terrific. Um, I offered to do a Sopranos-type series about spies in the 30s. I thought that would do really nice in a lot of ways, a lot of interesting characters. No, no, I can't. I cannot break that barrier. So I shrug and go on and write the next book. That's all I can do. It's just one minute. You, know, you just have to resign yourself to writing masterpiece spy novels. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you. I've been speaking with Alan first. His new book is a hero of France, and he is a hero of literature. <laughs> thank you so much, and thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.